Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. There's nothing to look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. Hey guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal, your favorite podcast, we hope. <laughs> and uh, we have over here, Rob, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going good, good. We got the projector and the projector screen up here yeah, in the studio, so we yeah. can do cheesy movie nights now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, uh, that's your birthday gift to yourself. It was. Since it's Rob's, it's going to be Rob's birthday here in a couple of days. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, actually, as we're recording this. So yeah, your birthday's August 7th, so everybody say happy birthday. Make sure you say happy birthday to Rob on Facebook. He loves that. Yes. <laughs> I love attention. I'm <laughs> And uh, speaking of movies, we have someone here to talk about movies and specifically esoteric things in movies, uh, and that's Robert W. Sullivan IV. Uh, Robert, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. I think this is the fourth time you've been on. Yeah, Adam, it's been something like that. Thank you for having me back on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, happy birthday, Rob. Thank you. Uh, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, it's. I think this is our, my third or fourth time. I want to say uh, that I've been back. You know that I've been been on your show, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, much appreciated. And I'm looking forward to uh, this evening's podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always great to have you on because you really are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to kind of like esoterica, and especially dealing with movies. Uh, first time we had you on, uh, we way back in 2014, we talked about the uh, Royal Arch of Enoch. Right. And then uh, 
Cinema Symbolism, the first book we had you on, and then we had you on again a couple of months later after that. Last year, in right. 2016, we talked a lot about Western esotericism and some right, of the roots right. and kind of covered like kind of a 101 on it. And now we're going to talk about your new book, Cinema Symbolism 2. Um, but there was a question that I wanted to ask you before we kind of get into um, these specific movies and kind of the hidden elements that are in them. Uh, something that I've read in some parts of the book, um, you mentioned this a lot. Uh, what is Negrito, Rubido, and Albedo? What is yeah. that? Because I keep seeing that coming up with uh, the black and the red, and I guess Albedo is, I'm not sure, is that white? Right. That, that, that is what you are talking. Is, <laughs> this has to do with alchemical movements. Um, this is a, a complex talking point, but I'll just try to summarize it. Um, when you're dealing with alchemical movies, uh, there are four symbolic colors of alchemy. Uh, rubido, which is the completion, which is the magnum opus is finalized. That's the end of the process. That That's red. Then albedo is white. That associates with the moon, the feminine. Then there's um, um, uh, negredo, which is the blackening. That's usually the first stage. That's the decaying decomposition phase of alchemy. That's the breakdown. And then there's another element, which which uh, you didn't mention, which is also, which is uh, citronatus, which is yellowing. That's the masculine sun. And these four colors, these four elements are uh, part of Renaissance alchemy. They're the four symbolic colors of alchemy. And when you're dealing with an alchemical movie, uh, it's incredible because these colors will turn up on, on, the, fil- on the film surface in the celluloid. Uh, in many instances, they will be they will actually turn up. You know, the physical color will be there, uh, you know, whether it be red or black or white um, or a lot of times. Um, not only will they be present, but they will be symbol- symbolized by a, a character or by something in, in the film. Um, so when you're when, when, when you have an alchemical movie you're dealing with such as like the shining or black swan that has to do with, you know, when I say alchemical movie, I'm not necessarily talking about a movie that, you know, documents the change, you know, the, the transmutation of base metal into gold okay. and, and alchemy and, and an alchemical film would be what I would describe as the transition of the self where a person starts out as one thing at the beginning of the movie goes through some sort of alchemical breakdown and morphs into something else by the, by the movie's end. That's an alchemical film. And when you have an when you have a movie that deals with this, these four colors, these four symbolic stages of Renaissance alchemy uh, are present, um, and it, it's an interesting and fascinating phenomenon to actually witness. And it's something that I wanted to delve much more into into, into cinema symbolism too. When I was writing it, is this whole idea of alchemical breakdown and how these four symbolic color phases of alchemy are present in films. And again, naturally, when you're dealing with a movie that has to do with transition of the self, so so that's what I'm referring to. Do you, are these put? You think consciously into movies, into films, or or is there more of an unconscious element of this? I mean, uh, where do you think the what, thought of this comes from? Yeah, well, it depends on the sophistication of the filmmaker. In some movies, the answer is unquestionably yes. Um, in some instances. You know, and this is what I talk about in, in the book, and this is something that goes back to the first movie book, is this whole idea of the collective unconscious coming forth from the uh, psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung. This is a theory that comes down to us from the Greek philosopher Plato. He called it the theory of forms. And what this documents is that some in, in, that, that there is this hidden treasure trove in our subconscious mind of these occult sigils 
ancient religions, mysticism, um, you know, astrology, archetypal imagery that is embedded in our subconscious minds that through the artistic process, through the creative expression manifests. And since movies are just that, a creative expression, an artistic formulation, that, that regardless of the filmmaker's intent, that some esoterica, of, uh, you know, appears in the film regardless. Now, I believe in most instances that this this material is placed in films intentionally. Uh, it certainly depends on the level of sophistication. Clearly, a movie like Black Swan that is very alchemical. These four colors are are very predominant on the film. Um, you you clearly understand that Aronofsky knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, and, well, Robert, and, let's take Black Swan then as an example to kind of like lay this out because I think that well, would be perfect to talk about it. Okay, well, I mean, th- this is a this is an example of this because this is where you can see these actual color schemes, you know, manifesting on, on the on the screen. So you have the white swan character, the white, the albedo. This is Nina Sayers, the moon. I mean, she calls herself that. She said, "You know, where have you been to the moon and back?" She's the innocent virgin. Uh, you know, who's going to morph into the, you know, alchemically change into the black swan character. Then you have the negredo, the, the decomposing, the, the alchemical process. You know, who is this represented by? You know, the black. Uh, this is, of course, Rothbard, who's always seen in black, the black doing demon. The mother, who's constantly antagonizing her. Uh, you know, she always wears black. The character of Lily, she constantly wears black with the, you know, w- you know, black tattooed wings on her back. You know, it's the alchemical negredo. It's the breaking down of the albedo, which is the moon. Then you have the masculine. Well, who's that in the movie? Well, that's the the Leon, uh, what's his name, Thomas Leroy character, the dance instructor. You know, who's constantly badging her and trying to, you know, bring the light to her. So, you know, he's the yellowing sun. He's trying to bring her gnosis light, telling her, hey, you got to let go of. You know, this idea of perfection, just go with it. And, you know, he's represented as the yellowing sun. So then you have her going through this transition where she's changing from this white, innocent, you know, uh, white swan ballerina into the darker, sensual black swan ballerina. The actual transition is 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 uh, presented on screen very cleverly by Aronofsky, where it's actually Nina Sayers' ringtone is what gives this away. Uh, mm. at, the, at the beginning of the movie, when she's the white swan character, um, the mother, the negredo, calls her, and it's just a typical ringtone. It's just like a ringtone you'd you'd always hear. Then she goes through the story. She encounters the blackening. Um, you know, she encounters she encounters the yellowing, the yellow sun, the, the the masculine. You know, you have the blackening there with uh, Lily, with Rothbard, with the mother. That's the Barbara Hershey character. Throughout this, and even even the Winona Ryder Winona Ryder character to some extent. Then, as this is going on, you will start seeing the color red pop up on screen. This means the alchemical completion is nearing. You know, that's the end of the story. That's when the alchemical transition has taken place and it's it's over with and finalized. You know, you'll see this with the word whore written in in red on the uh, on the mirror of the. Uh, of, of the bathroom. You'll see it's when she takes the red lipstick uh, from, from, from Winona Ryder. Um, when she leaves Winona Ryder's bedside, there's a, a white, or excuse me, there's a red picture hanging on the wall. So Aronofsky is teasing you, hey, that the Rubito, the red is coming. Um, and then she's at the, at the nightclub at the, you know, towards the middle of the movie, or I guess three quarters of the way through with Lily. Um, and if you pay attention to it, and this is very adroitly hidden, her ring starts, her, her phone starts ringing again. It's the mother again. Um, you'll notice the ringtone is now changed. It's magically alchemically changed. It's not a ringtone anymore. It's the uh, Rothbard theme. It's the uh, sinister theme music from uh, Swan Lake from uh, Act One, Scene Two. 
Um, this is, of course, saying transition is coming. The ringtone is magically changed. And then at this point in time, this is when Nina finally undergoes the metamorphosis, the rubido, the red. And this occurs when she's dancing in the nightclub with the red lights flashing. This means that the alchemical transition is now complete. And it's now after this scene, the red has happened. The alchemical change is done, where she starts actually morphing into the black swan bird. You know, she starts getting the feathers in her back. She starts getting the web feet. So th this whole right. this whole thing is processed alchemically on screen. Um, this is very intentionally done by Aronofsky. It's very masterful. Um, and when it comes to an alchemical movie, um, this is probably one of the greatest examples I can think of. The Shining would be another one. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's very adroitly hidden. So when you're talking an alchemical movie, um, you want to start paying attention. And that's the first key is identifying it. You want to identify, you know, these color phases. Because um, a lot of times they were literally be present on screen. I mean, the Nina Sayers character always is wearing the white clothing, the light clothing. You know, the other characters are wearing black. Um, so, you know, that that's big. That's a big clue that we're dealing with alchemical transition. Uh, and Black Swan by Aronofsky is a classic example of this. This was a movie, I'll just wrap up on this. This was a movie that I originally touched on in the first cinema book. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk more about this alchemical storyline. Uh, I left it out of the first book, so I talked about it much more in the uh, second book. Um, but yeah, alchemy and film, it's a uh, very deep and uh, complex subject matter. And uh, I love taking it on in uh, CS2. I'm just curious of where it, where it kind of comes from. Um, like, what's the tradition that these directors, these, these filmmakers would be pulling this would be pulling oh, this from from the Renaissance. That's from the Renaissance. Okay. I mean, they, you know, this is Renaissance alchemy. Um, is these four color stages? Um, I mean, this is part of the Hermetic tradition. This is a part of occult symbolism. Uh, this is a part of you know the esoteric and arcana uh, that a lot of these filmmakers are are very in tune with. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is a great example of it when it comes to hidden imagery in film. When you're dealing with an alchemical storyline and the transition of the self. You know, keep an eye out for this because these guys are very masterful when it comes to uh, utilizing these color schemes. Color can be just a powerful, just as powerful as any symbol in, in a movie, um, and when it's properly done, it, it definitely has an impact. Yeah, I think like the last time that we spoke, um, we talked a little about a bit about uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and one thing that I noticed in that movie was how much blue was used in that movie. Well, yeah, it's 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 with with eyes wide shut. That, that's a great example. And, you know, it's it's good you bring this up because it's not only um, the the colors. You know, when we talk about occult symbolism. I mean, uh, you know, symbolism. Uh, the the color can be a symbol. Music can be used. The posters can be used. I mean, I talk about in the book how actors and actresses can actually be used for uh, employed for occult purposes to yeah. drag in these cultural valances from, from other movies and therefore actually transform the movie by their mere placement in a film. Uh, that's a fascinating study. The, the, the eyes wide shut. I love with um, the whole thing with the gaudy Christmas lights. Cause he's, cause Kubrick uses these God awful, you know, in your face, you know, the blues, the reds, the oranges, they're right. constantly in your face. And you know, this, th these are always placed there when he's talking about these evils in society you know, whether it be child pornography or prostitution or homelessness or drug abuse um, or addiction or, or anything like that. Uh, and then you get into the the whole Illuminati temple, the, the sex magic ritual, you know, and, and there's no Christmas lights. There's no Christmas lights at all in, in, in the estate. You know, what Kubrick is telling you there is, well, the, the evils of the petty, the, the, the evils that usually plague mankind are petty 
compared to what these guys are up to. So yeah, I mean that 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 can be used uh, and employed for a great uh, you know a great symbolic effect. And uh, when it's properly done, it's very masterful, uh, extreme, uh, well done craftsmanship. I want to ask you a little bit about Aronofsky, some of Aronofsky's other movies. Um, did you ever see Noah? Have you have you watched that? No, no, I haven't. Uh, uh, Black Swan is really the last one of his that I've seen. Yeah. And it is one of those movies where every time I watch it, I find something new. So it can be quite maddening for me. Um, I, I'm actually started outlining uh, Cinema Symbolism 3. I'm actually finishing up my first work of fiction. And I've already started outlining Cinema Symbolism 3. I've already made some notes to revisit Black Swan again. It's. Uh, it seems like every time I watch that damn thing, I, I notice something new in it. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch that again. Because oh, that I, thing is endless. I yeah, mean, I, I watched it like maybe five or six years ago. The DVD that I had skipped, so I missed like 15 minutes of it. That was probably the most important 15 minutes of the movie. And so I'm going to have to sit down and watch that thing again, just to, just to catch all this stuff. Because Aronofsky is like that. I mean, he's that type of filmmaker where oh, yeah. he puts all these little elements in. That's why I was curious if you, if you had watched Noah, because, you know, a lot of people... Uh, we're saying, oh, you know, it's a it's a Bible movie, and not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I, There's I, I, so much Kabbalah and Gnosticism in it; it's not even funny. That's what someone else told me. Someone else told me the movie yeah. is really, really Gnostic in theme, and I haven't seen it yet. But watching an Aronofsky movie is maddening because you think you've seen everything. And like I said, with black Swan, you go back and watch it again and up, oh, there's something new again that I, I missed the first time around. So what you're telling me, I know is on my, I have a list of movies that I, I, I have to watch and uh, Noah is on it. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see when I get around the cinema symbolism three, uh, maybe we'll do a chapter on that. Yeah. There's an interesting scene in it where, um, Noah is basically raised by Methuselah, his grandfather. And, uh, which is Anthony Hopkins plays Methuselah. And there's a scene in it where Noah wants to find out what God wants him to do. And Methuselah makes up this little like hallucinogenic drug to give to Noah. So when I saw that, I was, I, I was just sitting there just thinking like, okay, this is not your typical Bible movie. You know, this, <laughs> there's a little more going on here. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, the fountain is another one that's all about birth and rebirth, which is another one that I need to sit down and, and watch. Um, well, let's talk about the shining because this is one that's like a really big one. I mean, there's a whole movie out there, which I'm sure you're familiar of, uh, room two thirty seven, which talks about the, basically all these people's different ideas about what the shining is about. And there's some real complex imagery in the shining. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. What, you know, what, what you have going on in the shining. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that is a complex movie. You have a, you have an alchemical storyline going on in that as well, you know, with a transition from a failed writer to a psychopath. Um, and you will have those four color schemes, you know, and again, it's, it's, you know, for instance, I don't want to get into it, you know, too much because we spend all night talking about it, Yeah. but you know, it's the same sort of thing, the rubido, the red, you know, the, the, the alchemical finality has occurred. You know, and Kubrick shows it to you, he pours gallons of red blood down the hallway. You know, this is the end of the alchemical change. You know, by that point in time, Torrance is a psychopath. The alchemical, the magnum opus, as they would say, is complete. So you have an alchemical storyline 
um, in that movie completely uh, without a credit. You have the yellowing sun, you have the moon, you have the Negredo, which would be the hotel. Um, you have a total alchemical storyline in The Shining. But you have, I mean, you, you really do have a lot going on in that. What I document in the in the book in CS2 is you have this in complete, um, and Kubrick does this just masterfully, where he just constantly repeats numbers and themes and dialogue um, it, it's just this endless repetition cycle. And what, what he's doing with this is he's bombarding your subconscious mind with this whole notion that the Overlook Hotel is just this one giant repetitive cycle, this re, this vicious reincarnation, you know, Ouroboros that never ends and just goes round and round forever and ever. Um, you, you have characters repeating lines back to each other. You have numbers that repeat constantly. Um, you have doubles. Uh, to signify this and, and repetition. Uh, and, and it is really uncanny. Um, I'm going to give you some examples of it if, if you would like. Sure, absolutely. Because uh, yeah. reading your book, I was reading about this today in your book, and just like this, the sheer, there's so much numerology in this movie. It's not oh, yeah. even funny. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you get the whole number, you know, like the room 237 when you add, you know, that's the hotel room number where the ghost hides out, um, you know, the evil woman. And it was different in the book. He he changed that around. I think in the book it's it's two seventeen or maybe two thirteen. Right. But if you take the number two two three seven and you add it, you get the number twelve. And the number twelve is all over the place. I mean, there are you know the the hotel is KDK twelve. Uh, there are two times flashed on the screen eight and four. Add them, you get the number twelve. Uh, he throws the ball. Jack throws the tennis ball against the wall twelve times. He hits the door with the axe twelve times. Wendy and Danny take twelve tor- turns in the hedge maze. Uh, I mean, he repeats the number twelve over and over again. If you multiply those numbers two three seven, you get the number forty two. You know, you have the number forty two on Scatman Crothers license plate. You have. Uh, the, the movie they're watching in the hotel is the summer of 42. Uh, Danny and uh, wh- uh, what is it? Uh, Danny's T-shirt at the beginning of the shoot thing is has the number 42 in it. Um, if you actually add up the letters in All Work and No Play Makes Jack a Doll Boy and the <laughs> blank spaces, it's 33 plus 9. So it's the number th- 42. Um, I mean, it's just uncanny. Uh, the 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 length that he went to put these numbers in there. And number 21 is another one that repeats. Uh, the Road that Jack Torrance is driving one is called the Going to the Sun Road, which was constructed in 1921. The the frames of, of the people that, that zoom in at the end of the movie is in uh, 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 rows of, uh, what is it, rows of three with seven pictures, seven times three, 21. So the movie ends where it begins. Uh, it's again, it's just this gigantic Ouroboros that Kubrick has constructed, um, doubles, you know, two boilers, there's two head, there's two mages, the hedge maze and the hotel. Uh, there's two sets of twins, the little girls, and then the two older girls who are leaving. Um, and Allman says goodbye to them. Uh, so, you know, there's this con, con you know, there, he has two tens in his wallets, there's Portland's Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, it is this constant repetition and development of doubles and numbers that Kubrick just blasts your subconscious mind with. Or, I mean, believe me, I do it much more in the book. And he's doing this uh, to convey this to, to your subconscious mind, this endless repetition and vicious reincarnation cycle going on inside the Overlook Hotel. It's a, There's a lot more going on in The Shining. I'm just scratching the surface with it. But it's a very deep movie. I agree with you. Very complex. And uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I like it anyway. Um, it, it's a great horror movie, and uh, I really, I really, really like The Shining. Stephen King hated it. I know that. <laughs> this is true. Uh, that's because Kubrick story. changed so much. I think just to, I think to just to do what you you're saying that he did. I think that's what he he changed so much in it. He he. You could almost craft an argument. I think it's a valid uh, that 
he he you know he was so obsessed with this he forgot to tell tell a story with it and and you know king king saw it more as a ghost story the novel and sort of you know kubrick kind of excised that out of it and right. um, I, I i may have told you this on another show i've mentioned it on other shows king king in the 90s bought back the tv rights from warner brothers and in the mid 1990s produced mm-hmm. yeah a, a two-part shining made from the made for television movie yeah and i've this, seen that yeah yeah this was king's version of what he he thought he thought the movie should have been um but i think i think the verdict is pretty much that everyone likes the kubrick version that's sort of the one everyone remembers but you're right king didn't like it and king king there were two things that king didn't like is he didn't like the fact that kubrick kind of dropped the ghost story uh with it and he also didn't like the jack nicholson performance he he wanted he thought the jack torrance character was he he viewed him as more as this wholesome man you know, this, this upright man who gets plagued by demons and turns into a psychopath. He didn't like Nicholson's take on it, where Torrance was sort of this weird, sort of weird, you know, eccentric person to begin with, sort of a kind of, you know, he's right from the beginning, he's even nasty t- to his wife. Right, and right. Worse. And he just becomes worse. Cook, uh, King didn't like that. The, the, in, the, in the novel, the guy is sort of this upright, you know, kind of guy who's struggling, but he's trying to be noble, trying to do the right things, but collapses. Um, in, in the movie, you know, it, it, you know, the Jack, Jack Nicholson's torrents starts weird and becomes weirder and King didn't like that. What about the whole thing about the Indian imagery in the movie? Right. That, that's, that's something I actually talked about in the first book. And I, I hint on it again in, in CS2 and that's cinema symbolism too. Of course, I'm just shortening it down. Um, the the Indian the the whole idea with the Indian imagery. Oh, and there's something else I'll talk about. Two three seven. Um, no one's asked me about this, and I'll, I'll get into it in a minute. Make to make a note to remind myself. The whole Indian imagery is the idea of the Overlook Hotel representing the dark, opulent side of America. I mean, even Ullman explains that. Uh, you know, the Overlook. You know, this is all where the best people come. Hollywood stars, all the politicians come, and, yeah. and it's you know, it's it's the opulence of America. But of course, there's a dark side with it. You know, and it's built on the Indian burial grounds, signifying the United States's you know construction. You know, or or you know, burying the Indian nations, which it did. You know, the United States basically took you know drove the Indians out. So it's this whole idea of the Overlook representing the dark side of America, and then you have this Indian imagery in in, in the uh, hotel. And certainly, you can't get rid of it. And it's the same thing with the natives. You know, they're they're still here. They're with us. They're you know maybe on reservations, but they're still here. But then I like the whole idea of this conflict being played out with the weapons of choice, where you have um, Jack running around with the axe. You know, the the the, the tomahawk. The symbolic tomahawk, and then Wendy's running around with the symbol of the great American pa- pastime, the baseball bat. So you have this whole idea of the, you know, America versus the Indians, the natives versus the Europeans, almost um, um, with that. And I'll just wrap this up. Um, and and I speculate this one in the uh, in the book, and, and we were talking about this off air, so I won't belabor the point. But the whole idea with the room two three seven, you know, why did he change that um, to the number? And I proposed in the book, a lot of people say it has to do with this fake moon landing thing going on, where in the late 1970s, when he filmed this, I mean, this, this story is well known as, you know, Danny stands up with the Apollo 11 sweater on, he goes to room 237. Um, and of course, at that time, the Earth's, the Earth's distance, or the moon's distance from the Earth was 237,000 miles. That's why I changed it um, to 237. There may be an alternative explanation for this. And that is, I know you you, you want to know this because you told me during the sh- before the show you hadn't seen the movie, um, and that is 
if you if you throw out the moon landing thing, why did he change the room number? And it could be an homage to a movie that came out a few years earlier, literally a few years yeah. earlier, called Suspiria. Um, and I, you, you said you haven't seen that yet. Um, if you watch that, pay attention. If, if you watch that, um, it's about this innocent girl coming to Germany, and she winds up doing battle with a witch's coven. This dark, and there's this dark evil witch who who resides in this secret ballet school, in this ballet school, in this sort of secret room. And it kind of conjures two, three, seven of this evil older woman hiding out. You know, this evil older witch hiding out in this secret room in a ballet school. So it kind of reminds you that um, if you watch the movie, pay attention to Susie Banyan's flight number. Um, she comes from New York to Germany on flight two, three, seven. Um, so I suggested in the book that. Uh, that, that Kubrick may be paying homage to Dario Argentus Suspiria uh, by changing the number to 237. It could be a reference to Su Susie Banyan's flight number because that movie, that's contextually proper and that movie just came out a, a couple years earlier. So Kubrick, would that movie would have been known to him. Right, right. Especially if he had any kind of relationship or he knew the director or something like that. Well, uh, yeah, and it, it, it's very contextual also, and I'll just leave it on this because if you watch Suspiria, the, the the evil witch, the old the old evil woman is hiding out in the secret room um, in this ballet school. And that's kind of what, what you have going on in, in The Shining. You have this old evil witchy woman hiding out in the bathroom sure. or in 237. So that 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 237 is is actually contextually proper. Didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, I was just one of the other things that I was going to mention, too, was the very end of the of The Shining where, you know, it pulls in on that picture. You know, Jack Nicholson is in the picture now. You know, right. this is a nineteen July fourth, nineteen twenty one, and uh, the the fact that he's doing the bafflement hands, sure. the, the hand placement, right in the in that which I never caught before. So, Absolutely. what's <laughs> yeah. no, what's go, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're spot on. Where where you have a couple things with that? Where you have the well, it, it, he presents you with this conundrum at the end of it, which is impossible to solve. I mean, you know, and this is this reincarnation thing. So, I mean, who the yeah. hell is this guy? I mean, is this Charles Grady? Is this Delbert Grady? Interestingly, both of their names have twelve letters, by the way. Um, so, you know, who is this guy? And then you're right; he's in the you know the the occult posture of the goat of Mendez, Baphomet. Um, if you're familiar with the sigil, that, of course, represents alchemical transition, the above and below of Hermes Trismegistus. Um, the Baphomet has the caduceus of Hermes. Of course, Hermes, Mercury. Um, this is all has to do with alchemical transition. And you could also just play it off. You know, it, it, it conjures that card, which is the devil card, um, you know, from from the tarot. This is the uh, Wade Rider deck where that where if you look at the devil card, it's doing the same, the Baphomet uh, as above, so below hand gesture. So you could just look at it as, OK, well, it's identifying Torrance as this devilish figure, uh, you know, who's murdering, you know, who's trying to murder, you know, his wife and kids. He's the devil. Um, and of course, he kills the, the Scatman Crothers character, you know, O'Halloran or, or, or mm. Halloran. So but yeah, I mean, that, that whole thing has to do with alchemical transition and the notion that, you know, the, the Torrance character is the devil or is a devilish figure. And again, it ties into this whole reincarnation thing is, you know, what the hell's going on here? I mean, who is this guy? You know, I mean, it's it's what the guy tells him in the bathroom. Um, you know, you've been here all this. You, you've always been here. You've never left. So it ties into this whole idea of the 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 the, the Overlook Hotel just being this endless you know, home of this endless Ouroboros reincarnation cycle um, is what's going on there. And uh, like I said, Kubrick employs this symbolism very masterfully, very skillfully. And it's uh, it's a wonderful movie to watch. And it's really a wonderful symbolic film to watch as well.
Was Kubrick a Freemason? Did he have anything to do with Freemasonry? No, he did not. Um, he, he was not a Freemason. Uh, do you think he was just self-taught about all this kind of stuff? I think a lot of these guys know a lot more than they let on. And yeah. I think, you know, I mean, you know, you, they, they, they obviously are cognizant of this to, to, to degrees or the filmmakers or producers are. I mean, you have, um, you know, I mean, you, you know, you have right there in the heart of Hollywood, you have Manly P. And I know you want to talk about this. You have Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society, not a stone's throw from um, Hollywood. And I may have mentioned this on, on Good another point. One. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I may have yeah. mentioned this on another one of your shows. I know I've mentioned this on another show. Uh, one of the guys, one of the actors for the X-Files, he was one of the actors of The Lone Gunman. Uh, he was one of those three characters. He, when he was on the X-Files set, he said this was when the series was just taking off. And one of the writers, he, he was caught into the writer's office. And, and he went into the writer's office. This was one of the writers for the X-Men, uh, for the X-Files, the TV show. And he went into this person's office and he, he was just, you know, kind of like moseying around. The writer wasn't there. And he started looking at the books on this person's library shelf. And he said, I'm, I'm figuring I'm going to see books on, you know, how to write a good screenplay or, you know, screenplay writing 101. He said all the books on the shelf were, were books by Madame Blavatsky and Albert Pike and Manly P. Hall and the occult and mysticism and, and astrology. And he said, you know, these guys know this stuff. Um, he said, you know, they, they hide it. He said, but these guys are into this stuff and they know when to use it and they know how yeah. to use it. Yeah. So, you know, it's that these guys, you know, and you see it, you see it. So, you know, you, you know, I'm not one of these guys where you say, oh, it's all coincidence. Yeah. If you saw it once or twice, maybe that would be the case. But when you see these guys doing it over and over again, I mean, these guys are master filmmakers. I mean, they're experts in it. You know, they know what draws your subconscious mind, what, you know, right. you know how to entertain you. I mean, these guys are expert when it comes to this because they use that material in order to tap into something deep in the human psyche oh i totally agree yeah i mean dealing, i totally agree with that they're dealing you know this ties into what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with the collective unconscious the theory of forms these are this is archetypal imagery that the human subconscious is hooked upon it's like catnip and it's like symbolic catnip and and you know you look at star wars harry potter the lord of the rings and it's the same story. I mean, it is the right. same story told over and over again. I mean, it comes straight out of Joseph Campbell's monument. The, yeah, hero the he hero's the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, this is one of the things that I break down in all my books or at least in the two movie books is I'm constantly giving when it comes to these Hollywood blockbusters, this, this Joseph Campbell monomythic breakdown, because they're the same story, just rebranded and retold over and over again. Uh, and, and, you know, when you become tuned in to these elements of the Campbell monomyth, I mean, you see it plain as day on, on, on the celluloid, and these guys know exactly what they're doing. You know, when Force Awakens came out at the end of 2015, mm -hmm. I remember a lot of people were a little... I liked the movie. I really did. So did I. And, and a lot of people were critical about the movie. Like, you liked it, Rob, right? Yeah. The, oh, the other Rob, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a duality going on here, Robert. Yeah, yeah I... I don't, I don't know exactly where you're about to go with well, this. Well, well, we, we talked about this before, but like people were like downing it because it seemed like it was too much like the original Star Wars, like A New Hope. And my response to that was, well, look, it's just you have a whole new set of characters that you're introducing, and this now is their hero's journey. So it's very steeped still into the. Um, Joseph Campbell stuff, the monomyth that you were talking about. So how can you really get away from that? Because you're, you're now telling another, another set of characters' story about 
it, it is the same story here's, because this is an archetype that has been going on for thousands of years. Here's how you get away from that. You don't have another Death Star. I agree with that. No, I agree Why? with that part. I agree <laughs> with that part. Yeah, I, I, like, I like The Force Awakens, and I agree with you. It definitely kind of borrows from episode four. I mean, that's pretty irrefutable, but I liked it. I thought there was enough there. There is um, monomythic elements in this, no question about it. I mean, it does... Like I said, you're absolutely correct. I liked it. I'm with you. I liked it, but it definitely borrows from episode four. Um, you have, there is some sort of interesting symbolism going on with this. I mean, there are these, Gnost- excuse me, these Gnostic overtones. Hang on. <coughs> Wrong pipe. Um, you right. have these Gnostic overtones um, in the in the movie where it does have this sort of anti-Christian feel to it. Um you know, where, you know, you kind of have the the whole Finn and Ray character, sort of these rebellion, rebellious Gnostics. You've got, you know, sort of the first order would be sort of, you know, you, you think of Valentinius having to deal with oppressive Christians. You have the first order as sort of the oppressive Christians. I mean, the one guy, you know, his weapon is the crucifix, um, you know, and they're in the temple talking to the hologram, you know, who's like the demiurge, you know, the illusion, the false god almost. Um, and then again, you have uh, you know, you're right, the, the star killer base, which is obviously a takeoff of the Death Star. And then you have this whole Christian element, you know, that Christianity is just this veiled sun worship where Jesus is a metaphoric stand in for the sun. So, of course, what fire star fire base? the sun um so yeah you 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 have this whole sort of gnostic rebellion against anti you know anti-christian theme in this as well um and then you have the whole thing at the beginning of it and and this is something that i get into in the book this whole notion of occult casting uh you know and that's the only thing i could think to to to, to call this where a film actually employs an actor or actress to carry their cultural valances with them to the movie. And you had this at the beginning of star Wars episode seven with Max von Cito. Um, his, his, his appearance in this movie is really uncanny. Do you want me to talk about this real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is interesting. I've forgotten that Cito was in, um, force awakens. Yeah. I, this is something I've, I've talked about on other shows and I, I mentioned it in the book. Where, I mean, I was watching this movie and I couldn't quite fathom why Von Cito was being cast in this movie. And, and my only, other question about Cito, has he always been old? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Because if you watch The Exorcist, it was just like over 40 years ago now. It's like he looks old in that. And like he's been old for like 40 years. <laughs> what's, what, what, what's funny it's, so it's a funny. it's a joke <laughs> no 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 but what's funny about the exorcist is is it's funny you mentioned that because at yeah. the time when the exorcist was made and von Cito was like 42 and and the, the the makeup designer actually said and if you if you have like a making of the exorcist or you have it on blu-ray there's there's you know always a making of you know with it and one of the makeup people said he said well the linda blair demon was hard he said, but the real challenge was making Max von Cito from a 42-year-old to a 92-year-old. Yeah, that's not he too said, far from the age I am really, now. Yeah, yeah. He said that was really something to accomplish. Um, so yeah, I mean, they did a, they did a great job with with The Exorcist, but um, certainly when when you had that opening scene in The Force Awakens, I mean, I've talked about this on other shows. That whole scene where von Cito comes out on the you know on the desert planet, he's sort of the hermetic figure and confronts um, Kylo Ren. I mean, this is obviously a complete replication of the opening scene of the exorcist where father Marin max von Cito, confronts the dark demon pazuzu in the desert no less um and you know the whole idea with this is is the placement of von Cito is conjuring to your subconscious mind this opening scene from the exorcist thereby it's, it's investing ren or excuse me kylo ren 
and the First Order with the demonism of Pazuzu. Then you flash back to another movie that, um, what's his name made, Von Cito made called Dune. It's the same imagery where Von Cito again is the hermit figure. Ta-da, he's on the desert planet, Dune, and he confronts what else but the dark evil lord, Baron Harkonnen, who strikes him down, and it's the same thing over and over again. So that that opening sequence with this, in Star Wars Episode Seven, by placing Von Cito there, it's triggering in your subconscious mind these two earlier movies where it's investing the First Order with the savagery of the Harkonnens and the villainy and demonism of Pazuzu. It's very well done. It's very masterful. Um, and and I, when I first started analyzing this, this idea of placing actors and actresses in movies for these cultural valances that they bring with them, um, at first I thought this was extremely rare. I thought this was not something you saw every day, but I've, I've trained my eye to start looking for this more and more, and I definitely have seen it more and more. So I know I know for a fact that this is being intentionally done by Hollywood, and it's a wonderful way to – it's really a form of sorcery. It's really a great way to conjure right. imagery to your mind just by hiring an actor or an actress for, from the, for these earlier parts that don't seem related but yet conjure this imagery in your subconscious mind and therefore take effect and invest the movie with whatever the filmmaker w- wants wants to implant in your mind. I, it's it's fascinating. Also, Cedell um, played both Jesus and the devil. Well, yeah, but I wouldn't say in that. <laughs> but in that kind, but there was no contextual basis. That's the right, key to, right. It's context, context, context. I just you thought I just thought that was interesting that he that he did that. Uh, the, the, yeah, you got to look for the context though. Uh, that whole thing with this is what are they trying to convey to you and you got to go to those two desert movies because you have it in the desert um i mean other examples of this are david lynch employing bill paxton and robert loggia in lost highway the wachowskis employing um anthony zerby in the matrix excuse me in the matrix reloaded um there are some other ones i forget the actress's name but the sheriff if you ever watch the tv show the bates motel in season five they had a new um sheriff come in i forget her name the actress, um, she was brought in intentionally to conjure an image from, from an earlier film she was done, done that she was in. I don't want to give that away. That's something I'm talking about in Cinema Symbolism 3. But um, it's fascinating um, the, the lengths that these guys will go to uh, to, to, to cast people for, for occult purposes that they bring to the film. It's fascinating yeah. study. Yeah, that is interesting. And you know, they could also say that oh, that's an homage you know, to an earlier film. You know, but there, there, there is some kind of psychological thing there as it's well. It's more powerful than an homage, right? It, it, it's more. I, I, you know, I could see where that someone may say that, but I right. think the image is much more powerful um, because you, you know, the, the kind of thing that thwarts this is you can always say, well, we just cast somebody else. They don't want somebody else. They want that particular person for these balances, these cultural, you know, iconographies that they bring with them. That they and then they transplant into this new piece of artwork, thereby transforming the film and also transforming the audience, both consciously and subconsciously. Um, it, it is really one of the closest things I could think of to sor- modern day sorcery. Is is what I just described. One last thing about Cedo uh, is you make the point in uh, the book with the statue of Pazuzu in The Exorcist that it's also doing the as as above, so below Baphomet. You got it. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Replacement. Yep. If you if you take a look at the um, at the opening sequence of uh, the Exorcist and the statue, it's also doing the as above, so below of uh, Hermes Trismegistus. And again, this is conjuring the devil card of the tarot um, in, in this context. 
which is uh, I can't remember what card number it is, but if you take a look at the you know the weight rider deck, which is the most common deck out there, that's the one that everyone's familiar with. Take a look at the devil card, and he's doing the same right. hand gesture, the as above, so below. So Friedkin knows what he's doing um, by placing the Pazuzu figure statue in that occult posture. It's conjuring that tarot card archetypal imagery straight to your subconscious and conscious mind, depending on the level of familiarity. And again, it's it's craftsmanship and it's brilliant filmmaking. Was that uh, was that statue made just for the movie? Yeah, it's such a okay. great, you know, it's funny, okay. yeah, it's funny you it's funny you bring that statue up because because um, there um, are the actual like amulets of Pazuzu. I mean, Pazuzu was an actual demon. That sure. was an actual Babylonian demon. Yeah, the the statue was actually made for the movie, um, and. I, you, you probably do a little research on this, and maybe maybe there's been an explanation for this. But the last time I had looked into the statue, I mean, it was you know it was used in the movie, and the statue went missing. Um, you know, it went it disappeared off the set. And my understanding of it, maybe maybe something has changed. The last time I kind of was reading about this was probably four or five years ago. My understanding of it is the statue is missing to this day, and no, no one knows what the hell happened to it. Uh, so it's sort of like an unsolved mystery as to what happened to the Pazuzu statue from the <laughs> exorcist. Uh, it's kind of like an unsolved, you know, mystery. Most likely someone stole it. Um, it's, it's in someone's garage. <laughs> yeah, it's like in someone's basement somewhere. Exactly. But, uh, you know, it, you know, it's one of those things. If you stole it, you really can't do anything with yeah. it. Um, but no, you know, I'd have to go look it up. Maybe, maybe it's been located since then, but I remember, I remember looking into this and the statue went missing. And to this day, I don't think anyone knows where the hell it is. Well, let's talk about um, Alan Moore. Now, here's someone that uh, I'm very interested in. I mean, I grew up reading the Swamp Thing comics when I was a kid. It's some heavy stuff for a kid to read, but now that I look back on it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he is an admitted occultist. Oh, sure. I and mean, he, has, he has no bones about it. Um, I think we might have mentioned Promethea last time. Um with you as which is kind of like is a comic series that's yet to be made into a movie which kind of lays out his entire um lays out kind of his, his entire occult philosophy a lot of it is based out of crowley you need to have the have that soundbite ready rob <laughs> mr crowley but uh oh, yeah yeah you've got it you've got to get that ready for the uh you, you can insert that the uh the uh, black sabbath mr crowley uh soundbite yeah go right ahead but you want uh, to send me by it <laughs> but you know so he makes no bones about his uh, his occultic beliefs but you picked three of three of his movies and of course he doesn't really like his movies i think he just does that to be contrary really but sure. you know, Watchmen from Hell and V for Vendetta, and I think of those three, in my opinion, Watchmen is probably the most um, occulty in a way than than the other two. But From Hell definitely has a lot. And of course, From Hell deals a lot with Freemasonry. Oh sure, I mean, I did, this is this is three movies that I took on. I like I like the movies. I like all three of those movies. I mean, you're dealing with a lot. You know, just just to get into them briefly. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of esoteric themes. I mean, in from how you have Freemasonry, you have the Jack the Ripper character using confusing Freemasonry with murder to form. This is basically his version of chaos magic. And he's doing this to, again, this movie deals with alchemical, alchemical transition. He's doing this to alchemically transmute the 21st century to turn it negative 
he tells you this is his modus operandi. You know, I will be the man who bursts the 21st century or the 20th century. Right. Excuse me. So, I mean, you're dealing with al- alchemy in that film. Um, you're dealing with a lot of Freemasonry in that film. V for Vendetta has to do with Gnosticism and um, consciousness expansion, um, you, you know, you know, rebellion, things like that with, uh, you know, the V character sort of being this Luciferian enabler. Um, you have, I mean, you know, you have the whole idea of, you know, the state being this demiurge like you know creation and its rebellion and to take down the state and uh you know you have this whole manichaean struggle of light versus dark alan moore you're right is a neo-gnostic he's a neo-pagan he's an occultist i mean he does those workings you know like shoots and ladders whatever it is serpents and ladders or whatever it is i'd, I'd have to pull it up but um he does these like on stage performance art that's yeah. occult you know yeah. and, and he's and you're right i mean he's an alistair crowley i mean and all those good guys so you know, um, yeah, you know, you will, you'll find these elements, I mean, all over his, his works. He's very anti-Christian. I mean, so, you know, I mean, just for instance, in V for Vendetta, you know, you know, where is it, where is it from that the state, you know, the Norse fire party spews all their hatred from all their evil propaganda. Well, I mean, it's the Jordan tower. And of course, you know, this is re- referencing the Jordan river, which is of course critical in both Judaism and Christianity. So by doing that, he's just telling you his disdain for the Abrahamic faiths. Um, you know, but again, he's an occultist, so this shouldn't be any surprise. And then you get to Watchmen, my goodness. I mean, you have all kinds of themes going on in that. Yes. Thing. I mean, you have <laughs> apotheosis. I mean, you have the apotheosis of mankind with Dr. Manhattan. I mean, he is, you know, you have the man, you know, the man going to the, to the God figure. I mean, if you pay attention to it, he's constantly floating around cruciform in front of the sun of all things. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have the, the, the whole secret society with Ozymandias, uh, you know, the, the, what is it, the Egyptian thing? I mean, this is obviously conjuring Freemasonry working behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, you just have a ton of occult imagery in Watchmen. Um, I like it, you know, how you have, um, you know, the, what's the name of Ozymandias' corporation? I, f- I forget the name of it. Oh, gosh. I think yeah. it's Pyramid International Pyramidal or, something. or something. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's the whole thing with this Freemasonic, like, cabal working behind the scenes. And, you know, he gets, I mean, the one guy, Moloch, you know, you, you think of the villain Moloch. I mean, you think of the Bohemian Grove. Uh, you know, statue there, you know, the secret, another secret society. Right. And, and then, then the Molex mail, you get the pyramidal transaction pyramid, you know, pyramidal thing in the mail, you know, which is conjuring, you know, the Egyptian symbolism. You can't help but think of Freemasonry. Then the next piece of mail is from the Jesuits of all things. So you get, you get that secret society involved, you know, denoting conspiracy. So yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, conspiracy. I mean, I call it a conspiracy smorgasbord in the book. I mean, it's just one conspiracy. I mean, you know, the, the one base where they're working, you know, where they're working is the Rockefeller, you know, center. And again, you know, this is conjuring Bilderberg and the trilateral commission and all that good stuff. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Watchmen is just a, a endless array of just conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy. I mean, it's a great movie anyway. Um, and it's, you know, the whole idea of the superhero being the dark figure, you know, I mean, where in the past the superhero was always, you know, battling, you know, the, the villain in this, the, the lines are much more blurred where, you know, the superhero is actually could be the villain. Um, you know, you're kind of left to hang and, you know, it's all from a subjective point of view, not objective. So it's a great movie. So, yeah, if you're into the works of Alan Moore, by all means, check out Cinema Symbolism, too. I break down those three movies and, uh. I mean, they're great films anyway, but yeah, From Hell, V for Vendetta, and uh, what's the other one? Oh, Watchmen. Yeah, all three, lots of esoteric imagery. There's also um, Patrick Wilson's character, you know, Night Owl. 
So there's oh, there's right. there's owls, you know, that that symbol is in there too. Yeah, the night owl with the Bohemian Grove, sure. An owl being a symbol of wisdom and things like that. Absolutely, no question about it. And then there's also the whole, you know, the idea of the ends justifying the means. Oh, sure. Um, Ozymandias is, uh, you know, kill millions to save billions. You know, oh, it's, there's a lot of powerful stuff in that in that movie, and and in the in the comic, in the in the graphic novel as well. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's the whole idea of the conspiracy of like you're actually right, you know, just killing millions to save billions, and you know they're going to have this global peace, and you know, you know they're doing the the, the the false flag incident to bring global peace and bring everyone together. Yeah, I mean, very very, very conspiratorial, no question about it. What's um. What are your feelings about how uh, Freemasonry is portrayed, well, I guess, in From Hell, but in other films as well? Well, Freemasonry, it's like anything else. There are some movies that are very positive when it comes to Freemasonry. Others are negative. From Hell um, is certainly, you know, what I would call anti-Masonry. No, no question about it. Um, you know, the whole idea of the Masons being involved to, in a plot to kill Jack the Ripper. This, yeah. this, this, was, this goes back to a book by Stephen Knight. Uh, I think it's called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. It's a neat story. It's interesting. I don't really buy it. Um, you know, it, it, it relies on the fact that, I mean, you did have the guy Warren, who was the police chief, who was a Freemason, and he's the guy who removed the graffiti. I think it was something to the effect that the Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. Right, of course, right. you know, in, in the yeah. conspiracy world, this is a reference to Jebelo, Jebelon, Jebelum, the three murderers of Hiram Abiff. Um, but but the, the, the more... The more um, mainstream theory is he had the graffiti erased because he was trying to prevent a race riot. He thought that if, if this got out, there would be this backlash against Jewish people and, and the, you know, the Jews could, were, were going to be held to be responsible for uh, Jack the Ripper. So that's why I erased it. Warren, Warren was a Freemasonry, but a lot of this relies on the notion that, um, that the Queen's physician, a man named Sir William Gull, was a Freemason. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence to this. Um, there doesn't seem to be any shred of evidence that Sir William Gall was a Freemason. So at that point, the whole thing falls apart. Um, it's an interesting story. I mean, Masonry gets a bad rap in it. Um, but you know, uh, Masons do like to watch the movie. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it kind of portrays the darker side of the craft. Um, and you, you know, everything casts a shadow, but certainly, you know, you, you have movies that portray Masonry positively, such as National Treasure and National Treasure 2. And even the man who would be king is sort of a, a Masonic admonition. So you have mas- Masonic movies that are also positive. The, the movie from hell, but a, a lot of people may not be aware of this. The movie was actually made, that move, that book, the Stephen Knight book, was made into a movie right thereafter. It was a movie that had that entered the Sherlock Holmes element. It was called Murder by Decree. And it starred Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes, and it's based on the book. Only instead of Alberline, the Johnny Depp character, it's Sherlock Holmes investigating Jack the Ripper. And mm-hmm. he, he discovers the same thing, that there is this grand Masonic conspiracy and to stand down and uh, you know, don't do anything and, you know, otherwise you'll be upsetting the queen and the established order. And, you know, the Masons are sort of the, you know, you know, midwifers of society. And, you know, we, we just, we're just, mon- you know, we can't have the, this, this, you know, air, you know, possibly in line to the British throne. So don't worry about it. You know, something we had to do, but no, the book, the, the book, uh, the comic books and the, uh, the From Hell movie are decidedly anti-Masonic. I like it. I mean, I'm a Freemason. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it's just art. It's just a movie. 
Um, and it's certainly an interesting story. I mean, so, you know, I don't, I don't really have a problem with it, but I mean, me personally, I don't buy the whole Masonic Jack the Ripper, uh, Nexus. Um, I, I don't think that to be the case, but you know, it makes an interesting bedtime story and it's certainly entertaining. So why not? Yeah. Me, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it either, you know, primarily because that graffiti was, uh, there's no proof that it wasn't already there. That's true. When, right. when it happened, and just that just happened to have been where the murder was, and you know, you, you're right because that was a new thing at the time. You had a lot of Jewish immigration into Britain, and had there these new immigrants, and had that been linked to them or in, in people's minds, yeah, it would not have would not have been good. So, yeah, but but you know, the, based off of that, well, people will go on these wild speculations that the murders were masonically rituals and all this kind of stuff, and. Yeah, Jack the Ripper is just probably just some crazy guy that wanted to kill people. I mean, that's well, they, <laughs> they, 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 um, the, 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 the theory was that the, the graffiti was near a murder site. And I think he had left, he had ripped a swatch of one of the prostitutes dresses off and used it to wipe his knife clean and dropped it in front of the graffiti. But yeah. you're right. There's no evidence as to who wrote it and how long the graffiti was there. I mean, it could have been there for a week. I mean, you know, some of the other, you know, evidence that people point to was that the murdering of the prostitutes were Masonic reenactments. Again, the murders of Jebelah, Jebelo, and Jebelum. These are, of course, the three traitors who killed Hiram Abif. Um, you know, I mean, and you will find that, you know, with the disembowelment and the slashing of the throat and things like that. But again, it, it probably was just, you know, more of a coincidence than anything. Um, my opinion on it was there was a guy who was identified who fits the bill for Jack the Ripper. And, and, um, you, people can look this up. His name was Aaron Kosminski. Um, I think mm-hmm. he was a Polish immigrant and I think he was familiar with, I think, I think he was a butcher and he hated women and he hated prostitutes. And after one of the murders, after one of the last murders, he was put in an insane asylum and it was, and we where he died eventually. And it was right after then that the Metropolitan Police was told to stand down. So, so the, the, the general consensus was they knew this was the guy. Um, and, and they, they, you know, they wouldn't have ordered the police to stand down had they weren't convinced that this wasn't their man. And after he was put in jail, the, the murder stopped. And, uh, you know, you know, know, I'll I'll let the, I'll let the listener, uh, you know, look this up, but, uh, you know, the, the consensus seems to be that Aaron Kosminski was the historic Jack the Ripper. That that's, you know, I guess we'll never know for certain, but that's where the fingers point to at any rate. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, David Lynch is another one that, uh, I must admit, I'm not a very huge fan of Lynch's movies. Sure. Um, like lost highway, just, uh, completely baffled me i i I feel feel like lynch is just like sometimes he's just weird to be weird and not in like a very good way yeah (laughs) lost highway i watched like three times because i was sure i was i should have enjoyed it (laughs) like it just seemed like something i should really be enjoying but i just didn't get it (laughs) yeah it's it's intentionally confusing um yeah, Lynch, Lynch is definitely, uh, I mean, I would definitely say when writing the book, I mean, by far and away, the most difficult ch- portion of the book to write was the David Lynch chapter. I mean, you have you have so much going on in that, in, in his films. I mean, Lost Highway, I mean, uh, Mulholland Drive is is a, a Gnostic journey dealing with different, you know, conflicting aspects of the sacred feminine. Um, Dune is the monomyth, um, and that is one of the greatest examples to find it. 
Lost Highway is Sethian Gnosticism. This is negative theology. This is the more evil you do, the closer to God you become. Um, is is the under? I mean, if you didn't like the movie, I won't get into it too much. But th this is a religion known as negative theology. Uh, it was practiced by a group called the Sethians. Um, it's a Gnostic set uh, sect. And it's 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 the more negative you become, the closer to God you become. Um, this was codified in the fifth century by a writer uh, who called himself Dionysus, the pseudo Aeropagite, and this was later uh, Christianized in the Middle Ages by uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas. And then you have Mulholland Drive, which is um, you have the whole idea of the dream versus the real world. You have elements of Gnosticism in this again, with Mister Roke being the demiurge, like you know, you know, figure. You have him also being the Illuminati puppet master. This is an interesting talking point. If you're not a fan of his movies, I won't get into it too much, but you have this whole idea of Gnosticism and these Illuminati movies um, sort of always running parallel to each other, movies like They Live. You know, what? why is this? And it's the role of um, the, the Demiurge or the Archons being sort of the manipulators of mankind. Um, so, so whenever you have these Illuminati-styled movies, you, you have these Gnostic overtones as well. But if you're not a fan of Lynch, um, I won't get into it too much, but it, it's very complex um, you know, you know, all, all three of those, all, excuse me, all four of those movies are, are very heavy lifting. And I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think a movie such as Lost Highway is, is impossible to interpret ultimately. I mean, he's doing that on purpose. I mean, he wants sure. to make sure that there is, um, that there is, uh, you know, no definitive answer to, to that story. I mean, I think that's pretty safe to say. Oh, oh he, I, he, I, he, I, he I, does I, it effectively. Yeah. I mean, I like Lynch. <laughs> I mean, I like some of his movies better than others. I mean, same I, I mean, here. Same yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think Mulholland Drive is probably his masterpiece. Uh, I, I like Dune. I think Dune is great. I like I like Blue Velvet. I like Lost Highway, but I'm with you. I mean, it's confusing and intentionally confusing. Uh, but but I, I like Lynch, and I, I, you know, when when I came to writing that chapter, I was originally going to take on Twin Peaks as well. This was the first series, not the one that they have on right now. Um, and I just ran out of time. I mean, I thought, my God, I mean, you know, this book will just, I mean, it's already almost six, six, 700 pages. I mean, this damn thing <laughs> will just go on and on. So I cut out Twin Peaks and, uh, I'm planning on revisiting David Lynch 2.0 when I do cinema symbolism three. So we'll do Twin Peaks. We'll do this new Twin Peaks series. We'll do, uh, you know, what's the other one there? Eraserhead and, uh, the other one with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern, the, the title of it's, uh, wild, wild at heart. Wild at heart, yeah, yeah I wouldn't pick uh, on that one. But I like Lynch, but I, I agree with you. It's uh he's not for everybody. Um, you know, you know, you know, some people are not into him at all, and that's certainly understandable because I, I would not disagree with you that you know, some of those movies are are very complex. Yeah, I, I mean I did like Blue Velvet. I will admit that. Blue Velvet no, was no. a was a very good movie. It's and it's not that the other ones weren't good in a way. It's just that, what are you trying to say here? You know, it's just kind of like, I, I just wonder how much of that is, I'm just going to make a movie nobody understands and I think it's a movie that he understands. Right, uh, right. You know, you know, and I don't think he cares whether you understand it or not. I think yeah. he understands it. I mean, I looked at I looked at Lost Highway and Blue Velvet. I mean, this gets into like depth psychology. I looked at those as like uh, almost the same movie where, you know, you know, you have, um, you know, where, 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 where in, 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 in Lost Highway, you're dealing with the negative and positive sides of, of, I think, I think those, those movies, those two movies are David Lynch. 
I mean, I think I think those movies are are his personality. I mean, I think that's what he's showing you. That's David Lynch. Um, in 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 Lost Highway, I mean, he's showing you the positive and negative sides of the masculine. You know, the the Fred Madison character is the jerk. You know, the 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 negative control freak. You know, this is his negative side. This is the negative side of David Lynch, and his positive side is um you know you know the 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 pete dayton character and then you get into the whole idea of the young anime and animus where it's the same sort of thing where diane selwyn is sort of his feminine side and that's his negative feminine mm-hmm. side and then betty betty elms uh this is also naomi watts uh would be his positive side so you're dealing with a lot of depth psychology and i say i say in the book in cinema symbolism too i mean i think i look at those two movies almost lost highway and mulholland drive as just just the same movie, just expressing different sides of Lynch's own twisted sort of personality. Um, that's really kind of the way I view them. And uh, but I think he gets them, but I don't know if he's if if you get them. But I think he wants it that way. I guess that's the sign of a good artist. I mean, if it, like you, you know, it's just expressing what you express, and then if, if people get it, fine. If they don't, fine. You know, I guess that's yeah. that's how. That's how it is. Uh, just as an aside about the uh, Sethian theology, that reminds yeah. me a little bit of um, whatever, you know, they talk about Rasputin, the, uh, some of the yeah. stuff that he practiced. Right. It's the same sort of thing. It's, it's right. The more sin you do, the more, um, you know, forgiveness. It's a little different. What you have in Lost Highway is you have the Fred Madison character being a jerk. Um, you know, being this control freak, I mean, he even lives, has to live near an observation tower. I mean, he's constantly controlling the wife. Um, and then you have the whole idea with the mystery man as, as good evil. Um, and this is coming out of the book of Enoch where it's, it's divine evil. Um, and of course, evil can't go where, unless it's invited, where it's welcomed in. And the mystery man tells you this. He says, I don't go where I'm not wanted. Um, and then, you know, you have the whole idea of Fred wind up killing his wife and then he goes to jail and he's sort of in this limbo and then he becomes this other wonderful character. Yeah. So it's only through the destruction of his one self that he be- becomes enlightened. So it's, it is, it's the sort of negative theology. Um, it's a fascinating study. And like I said, it's, it's not, it's not easy to interpret. I mean, even for me, it's not easy to interpret because that movie is incredibly complex. I mean, you always have in these movies with him, especially in like that with lost highway where I mean, it's always this like borderline, between what's real, what isn't, you know, and it's, it's just so difficult to, you know, what is the real and what is the fantasy? It's, it's very hard to pin down and, um, but he's doing it on purpose, but that's okay. I mean, you know, you take it for what it is. Yeah. It gives, it gives that, gives the uh, viewer that kind of like cognitive dissonance in a way. Yeah. It reminded me like the idea of uh, two different people or, or a person becoming another person. You do, you do mention angel heart in this in this book which is like i would say that's probably one of my favorite movies oh i love angel heart um, and it's, I, it's one that people don't talk about very much anymore but it's a great film oh yeah i mean well that thing you have i mean you certainly have the whole um idea i mean again that's just a journey of self i mean that's just a gnostic journey when this case he's just you know in this case he's just journeying to find out who he is um and then you have the lucifer character the light bearer i mean he's the wisdom bearer and, you know, I, I say it's just Hermes Trismegistus in a black suit, which is exactly what he is. I mean, and then you have, 
I mean, I love it at the beginning where he's in the church. Why is the devil in the church? But if you pay attention to it, I mean, the guy's a fault that the preacher is just a money grabber. He's a false prophet. I mean, I mean, there's even, I forget the name of it. The, the, I think it's Pastor John. And if you go in, if you watch the church in the background, it says Pastor John is God. So you know you're dealing with a false prophet. I mean, again, this comes out of the Bible. Beware of false prophets. This is why the devil or Lucifer is hanging out with the guy. Um, I, you know, you, you have two storylines going in, in on this. You have the whole idea of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a Gnostic journey of self where he's, you know, conscious expansion where he's going to discover who he is. You have another, another storyline, the alchemical storyline, which has already been told. And that is this ritual that has transformed them into another person. That storyline has already taken place. But if you pay attention to it, you'll constantly see the color red, you know, the red blood or the red window where the hotel room was. And again, that's signifying the alchemical rubido, the, the alchemical process has already gone through. He's now this other figure. The alchemical magnum opus is done. Favorite is just trying to figure out who he is. Um, and of course, he, he discovers that he's the guy he's looking for at the end. He's Harry Angel. Um, great esoteric imagery in this thing. Uh, I like it that the one guy, Edward Cruzmark, the father, goes by the name of Edward Kelly. Um, of course, this mm. is a reference to John Dee, who uh. also conquered spirits. Um, I mean, that's great. You got the whole hand of glory thing there. Uh, which is fantastic, which is a great witchcraft device, and you actually get to see it on screen. Um, and then at the end, people don't pay attention to this, but of course Johnny Favorite was a crooner. And pay, pay attention to the end of the movie where um, where where Angel, um, where, where he's sitting in the parlor with the devil, with Lucifer, and, and Lucifer's telling him, you know, you're the guy, you know, in your soul's mind. And then, and then Lucifer puts on, this is Robert De Niro, puts the record on. Um, the record is actually a song by Johnny Favorite. Um, and it's actually, it's actually him singing to himself, actually. So Angel Heart is a great film. It has loads of esoteric imagery in it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's a, it's just a phenomenal movie. I just absolutely love it. And it's a, it's a great, it has great Gnostic themes in it of journey of self. It has this other alchemical storyline that's already taken place though. That's kind of told, told, told through, uh, flashbacks, but, uh, yeah, great movie. I absolutely love Angel Heart. Yeah, directed by the same guy who did The Wall. Pink Floyd's The Wall, by the way. Alan Parker. Well, Pink Floyd's The Wall? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Same same I, director. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's probably esoteric imagery in that as well. But I haven't, it's been too long since I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, a movie that I watched not too long ago uh, was The Ninth Gate. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Have you seen that, Rob? Oh, oh, I, I, oh, you're talking to the other ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that I think that one is a bit more straightforward, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's very straightforward, but there is some interesting things that are not so straightforward in it, though. Oh, that uh, thing's overloaded with with esoteric. Absolutely. Imagery. I mean, that thing has loads of you know. You want to talk about Masonic imagery? I mean, there you have it. I mean, you know, th this ties into, I mean, I, I, this was a movie that I originally broke down in Royal Arch of Enoch, which was my first book. That was a book on Freemasonry. I actually, re that was my original breakdown of the Ninth Gate was in that. And I, I had subsequently watched it. I've subsequently, I have it here on Blu-ray. I've subsequently watched the Ninth Gate and I, I, there was more elements of this that I wanted to take on in CS2. Um, I mean, but you have the whole idea of the, uh, the idea. I mean, this is the whole idea of the Ninth Gate. This ties into Hebrew Kabbalah with with the ninth Sephirot unlocking this tenth Sephirot known as Kether Crown that leads to this divine awakening, this sort of Godhead, this divine wisdom. 
you know, you have the whole idea of nine gates. You have, you know, it's this whole Gnostic reversal going on in this where you have nine gates to receive wisdom. This is, of course, paralleling Dante's Inferno, where you have nine circles of hell that Dante goes down to meet Lucifer, the light. So he's transversing down into hell to get light to receive gnosis because he winds up exiting hell to receive light off the back of Lucifer. So you have, you know, if you read Albert Pike, will tell you that, that Dante's Inferno and the divine comedy is Gnostically reversed. Um, and then again, you have this in Freemasonry where in the Royal arch degree, you have the name of God and this, um, antediluvian wisdom, um, concealed between, but beneath ninth, nine arches or archways. So you always have this, you know, idea of the ninth gate leading to wisdom in Dante's Inferno, nine levels, of hell leading to lucifer light wisdom and then again in the in the masonic ritual the royal arch of enoch you have nine arches which underneath of which are concealed the tetragrammaton and this antediluvian wisdom which again you know parallels you know the number nine again so you have this deep freemasonic element going on i mean there's tons of esoteric imagery going on in this i mean you have the engravings which are coming off of the tarot uh you have um, the two bookkeepers, the, the Seneza brothers, Seneza brothers, I mean, yeah. they're, twins. they're representing, um, you know, the, you know, the sign of Gemini, the twins is, rep- is, is ruled by the planet Mercury. Again, this ties into Hermes or Hermes Trismegistus, the wisdom bringer. That's why they're the guys who are the keepers of the final gra- uh, engraving at the end. Tons of information going on inside the ninth gate. I mean, it's a great fit film. If you watch, if you watch the movie, um, you know, you will constantly see little busts of um, Dante, of Dante Alighieri popping up on screen. I love it how you have I, I, one of the greatest things I, I, I absolutely love in that movie. And I think Polanski did it on purpose. I'm almost I'm, I'm convinced of it because he, he knows this. You have the Lucifer character, the woman who is this beautiful woman. And of course, this is paralleling mythology where Lucifer in, in mythology is the planet Venus. And of course, in Greco-Roman mythology, you know, this is your beauty love goddess. This is why you have it in, um, you know, in, in the, in the movie, she's this beautiful woman and it's tying into this Greek mythology. And of course, you know, the most famous painting or imagery of Venus is the Neoplatonic painting by Botticelli of, you know, Venus, you know, you know, the, the divine love of the birth of Venus standing there on the seashell. And of course, the seashell represents the sun. She's Venus, Lucifer. She's bearing the light. If you pay attention to the ninth gate, you have the beautiful woman. She is constantly standing in front of shell gasoline stations. So that whole imagery of the beautiful woman in the seashell that's conjuring Botticelli's birth of Venus. Um, and again, it's this Neoplatonic solar allegory. Sounds like um, I got to watch it again. <laughs> no, it's very, it's very, it's very pagan. It's very Neoplatonic, but it's masterfully done. Um, and again, I'm just you know I, I'm just going over it as fast as I can. But by well, all means, ch- check out check out the Ninth Gate. Read the book and well, then check up check it out. It's a great film. Well, there there was one thing I wanted to ask you about the Ninth Gate was I mean when I first watched it back in like it came out in '99, I think I didn't you know I liked the movie, but I didn't understand a lot of this stuff like I do now. And uh, I couldn't help but think about the woman of her being in a way like she is what you're saying she is. I believe that, but I wonder if there's an element of Crowley's Scarlet Woman in there as well. Oh, absolutely. I thought I thought there was there was the whole idea of the whore of Babylon and Babylon, you know, tying yeah. into Parsons and, and the sex magic female person persona to receive magic. No, I, I think I think you're spot on with that. No, I. I I totally agree with you that the woman is definitely representing this Babylonian, you know, goddess figure. You see her riding on the beast at the end, um, you know, and, and it's like the sex magic partner. I, I t- 
totally, totally agree with that uh, interpretation of it. I mentioned it in the book, actually. So good pickup. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I it just, it, it, I, I just could not help but think about that because, you know, I've studied a lot about Crowley and Jack Parsons stuff and Marjorie yeah. Cameron. Make sure, insert, make sure you insert the Mr. Crowley sound. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with Polanski? I mean, he really, I mean, he really is into this stuff. Yeah, he, and he claims not to be. So he's kind of, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, you know, he did Rosemary's Baby. I mean, I mean, he did the one. I mean, he, he knows this stuff. You know, you got the stuff in Rosemary's Baby. That's a little more on the surface, um, you know, and, and it's a great movie anyway. But then, you know, Polanski did Repulsion. That was a few years earlier. I mean, he does some great stuff in that as well. Uh, you know, with, with the decaying of the mind and you have the decaying of the, of the uh, rabbit. In, in you know in the passage of time in, in 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 repulsion so yeah i mean he he's another guy i think i think you know these these filmmakers are very masterful at this i mean and they know yeah. what they're doing i mean i hear this in freemasonry it, it, it's good you bring this up real quick because you as a mason you hear this all the time with these guys who want to live in denial on this you know you have these guys such as benjamin henry latrobe who is is you know the godfather of american architecture i mean he only the de- he only designed the u.s capitol and and the baltimore basilica you got robert mills who did the Mon- washington monument the obelisk and he did the washington monument here in baltimore and people like uh, james hoban who did the white house based on a masonic temple you got land font who was hanging around with freemasons was initiated we know at least into the first degree of freemasons masonry that 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 caused constant consternation amongst many freemasons they were saying oh this guy doesn't know anything he was never a mason bull we know not that we know that he was at least initiated oh and he was initiated into the Whit clinton's lodge holland lodge in new york boy there's a shocker and and you will hear this constantly that these these architects who are geniuses at, at, at building and sacred geometry you know and and building these these memory temples like the u.s capitol and the and these you know these for, forever memory temples that are that are designed to leave these vast impressions upon seeing them and nearing them and entering them. But when it comes to Freemasonry and occult symbolism, these guys morph into total idiots all of a sudden. Oh, you know, these guys didn't know what they were doing. These guys would never have heard of the Hermetic tradition. You know, these guys would never have heard of the sacred ratio or the Vesica Pisces. It's all bull. I mean, it's the same thing with Da Vinci. You know, you, you will hear you will hear this kind of like, oh, the guy was this super genius. But when it comes to esoteric imagery in his paintings, he, he turns all of a sudden into a dummy. You know, who had no knowledge of this whatsoever. These guys all know this stuff. And, you know, and, you know what, what, what you'll constantly hear is, they say, oh, they didn't write it down in their journal. Well, look, I know it. I don't write it down in my journal. But, you know, what these guys do is they <laughs> write it down, only they write it down in stone. Uh, and, 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 right. and they hide it in architecture. And these movie makers do the same damn thing. They don't write it down in some dinky journal. They hide it, but they hide it in the celluloid. They hide it in their masterpieces. And, and that's what Latrobe did. That's what these architects do. That's what Da Vinci did. And that's what Polanski's doing. That's what Aronofsky's doing. That's what Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and all these guys are doing. And, and if it was one or two films or one or two buildings or one or two paintings, I'd say, yeah, OK, it's a coincidence. But when you see the same material used over and over and over and the same imagery and these esoteric numbers popping up, it, it, you are so beyond coincidence that, you know, it's not even worth having that conversation anymore. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Let's talk about one that has some real deep occult um, significance, and that's Halloween 3. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I'm yeah, telling you, producer Rob needs to see this movie. <laughs> I'll watch it again soon. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we were before, just so the listeners know, before we actually started recording the show, we were actually talking about Halloween three. And I said, oh, we got to talk about it during the podcast. I I love the movie. I mean, I will be the first to admit now I know Michael Myers is not in the film, you know, and it gets this incredible. It had it has this incredibly bad rap and it still lingers to this day that it was sort of trading on the Halloween name and people didn't like it because they were expecting this Michael Myers movie that's not there. If you remove the name Halloween 3, it's a great movie. I mean, it's one of the first movies. Evil Speak is the other one that fuses modern technology, in this case, computers with witchcraft. Um, I mean, it's got some interesting homages in it. I mean, it's it, it, it's a whole homage to uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, there's some interesting, you know, I, I call it Easter eggs in the book. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. She's the voice of the... Uh, She's the voice of the uh, phone operator in Santa Mirror, and she's the voice of Santa Mirror's cur- curfew uh, lady over the loudspeakers. So there's some great imagery in the movie. Um, I, I, we were talking about this before the show. I am really happy to see that the movie has undergone a bit of a renaissance and that people are, are liking it more um, than they did. I mean, I remember in 1982 when that came out, I mean, I was 10 years old. I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on cable TV. But, I mean, the movie was just trashed. I mean, all over the place. You know, I mean, how, how could you make a Halloween movie without Michael Myers? And I remember watching it, you know, about six or eight months later on cable TV. I remember watching it thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't see a reason why I, I shouldn't like this movie. And I did like it. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was an interesting little murder mystery. I like the Connell Cochran character. I mean, here you finally had a James Bond-style villain who seems to get away with it. I mean, all the Bond villains always got thwarted. This this guy seems to have pulled it off. So I, th- I, I like that aspect of it. And, you know, I, I just like the movie. And it, it's, for me, right now, as, as we're recording this on August 6th, I mean, I wouldn't throw Halloween 3 right on right now, but um, around <laughs> Halloween, it's a really fun movie to watch. And if you've never seen it, by all means, give it a chance. Uh, it, it's a good movie. I mean, I love the... I mean, it's a lot of anti-archetypal imagery. I mean, I love the hero. I mean, all the hero wants to do is smoke, get drunk, and hide from his ex-wife. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah. that's, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, but, you know, I mean, that's all he wants to do: smoke, get drunk, and hide from his ex-wife and kids. So, you know, you know, I mean, at least they based it in some reality. Uh, and and it, it's just, uh, I mean, you have you have some stuff going on with the the, the silver shamrock. The shamrock being an emblem of the sun, the druids, the shamrock is, you know, trifold. And of course, you have the three Halloween masks. And of course, it's Halloween three. So, I mean, you, you know, it's it's good stuff. If you saw the movie the first time and you didn't like it, give it a second chance. If you've never seen Halloween three, uh, give it you know, again, watch it and just watch it for a fun movie, you know, and, and try to watch it around Halloween as, as the holidays approaching because it, it's super fun to watch when uh, Halloween's around. Well, look, you got the, you got one of the stones from Stonehenge. You've got, you've got an evil, you've got an evil witch slash bad scientist. What's there not to like? (laughs) I mean, you've got, you've got masks, you've got Halloween masks, melt kids faces off. You've got, I mean, you've got, you know, the, the, the I mean, the the androids. I mean, you've got the guy who's the wizard, the evil warlock, Uh you know, the, the Connell Cochran, who's the wizard, witch warlock. I mean, he even says, he says he's doing it because the stars are aligned. Uh, I like it how, you know, the robots, I mean, this is basically Gollum making. I mean, these are just ca- cabalistic androids. I mean, think the Nexus Sixes and Blade Runner almost. You know, yeah, and again, yeah. he gets away with it. I mean, he seems to get away with it. So, 
I, I like the film. I mean, I don't make any bones about it. I mean, is it as good as the first Halloween? No, of course not. I mean, that's a classic. But it's a fun movie to watch. If you've never seen it, give it a shot. And if you saw it and you didn't like it, give it a second try. Yeah, I've watched it twice since I saw it the first time. So it, it is a very interesting, a very interesting movie. Um, and you brought up a good point in the book that's something I didn't even think about. In The Shining, the bartender is played by the same actor that plays the... Can't remember the Tyrell. character's name. Yeah, Tyrell in uh, Blade Runner. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's another example of this where you have the um, you know the the guy being cast from The Shining, the evil bartender, the devil, you know, being this sort of devil creator of the uh, Nexus Sixes. Uh, you know, it's 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 a uh, you know it's it's sort of like an Enochian demon is what the Nexus six, Sixes are. That's these that you know it's the fallen angels. It's the good guy who it's the bad guy who's trying to do good. Uh, think Maleficent in in the movie Maleficent, same sort of imagery. So yeah, absolutely. Joe Turkle is is another one of these guys, and uh, you know, uh, Blade Runner, very Gnostic. That's a movie that I took on in the first cinema book, but I will definitely be revisiting that in Cinema Symbolism Three, especially since the sequel's coming out this year. Yeah, I saw that. I saw. Yeah. Is it a sequel or is it a remake? I think it's a sequel. No, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely take a look at that. I didn't know if it was a sequel or remake. I, I, I saw some ads for it, but that's about it. Something that intrigued me kind of looking through the table of contents uh, was the title, Witch Mountain, Occult and Mind Control. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, well the Witch, I mean, the Witch Mountain movies, these were films that uh, were, you know, made by Disney when they were kind of abandoning. This was the phase where Disney kind of got real dark. Um, they, they'd run the gamut on animation movies. They didn't know what to do. And in the late seventies, early eighties, they, they tried to target an adolescent audience, young teenagers and teenagers. And they made this string of incredibly dark movies. The witch mountain movies are one of them or two of them. Uh, the black hole is another, the black cauldron, something wicked this way comes. I mean, these were all very, very dark movies. A lot, I uh, loved that I, movie when I was a kid, something wicked this way comes. Oh, very dark. Dragon Slayer is another one. Did not uh, realize that the guy who plays the evil carnival worker was Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these were very dark movies. And, and p- kid parents took kids to see these on the Disney brand. You know, and the kids were terrified a lot of times. And there was a massive <laughs> backlash against Walt Disney. Yeah. And it wasn't until really 1989 or 88, whenever it is, you had this what's called the Disney Renaissance, where they put, produced The Little Mermaid. And then every year after they were making, every year they came out with this massive, profitable animation movie. I guess I guess the uh, high watermark of which was The Lion King in 1984. But you had like Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, movies like that that just made Disney a, you know, a fortune. Uh, in movies, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, you have. Um, I mean, th- those are very dark movies. I mean, you have in 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 in, in the Witch Mountain movies. I mean, you have the whole thing of the kids. Are they witches? They turn out to be star children. In part two, I mean, you have these very adult themes being veiled in in a in a child's movie, where where the one where the one star child Tony is being mind controlled literally by Christopher Lee, and him and him and Letha Wedge, who is Betty Davis, are, are trying to get him to murder his sister and and steal from a museum. And if that's not enough, he wants to take over the world. So he puts the kid in a nuclear reactor to cause a China syndrome to, to, to basically take out Los Angeles. I mean, this is a kid's movie we're talking about. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they want to wipe out Los Angeles by causing a China syndrome so that Christopher Lee can take over the world. Uh, I mean, you know, really, you know, a, a great movie to take your kid to on, on a Sunday afternoon. So, yeah, I mean, you had these really 
um, dark themes in these movies that were geared to kids. And I, I did a whole chapter on Disney. I mean, Disney does get a bit of a bad rap. Uh, I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there, and I'll just I'll just put this to rest once and for all. Disney was not a Freemason. Uh, he was not a Blue Lodge Freemason. He was not in the Scottish Rite. He was not in the York Rite. He was in a group called Demolay, which is the Masonic Boy Scouts. Yeah, um, yeah. And 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 he was in that. That obviously left an impression of him. Uh, I have it in the book, a picture he drew for Dad Land. All the, all the leaders of Demolay are called Dad. And uh, it's a Mickey Mouse wearing the one of the... Uh, one of the Demolay medals. And I think, I think in a, in a, in a cartoon strip in the thirties or forties, you had Mickey Mouse pre- presiding over the Demolay chapter of, uh, or the D- the Mickey Mouse chapter of Demolay. And it went, obviously left an impression on Disney, but he was not a Freemason, but he was in this, in, in this, uh, society called Demolay. And, uh, it named after Jacques Demolay, the grandmaster of the Knights Templar. Yes. Right. Demolay. Right. The one was burned at the stake. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, Disney movies have a lot of esoteric imagery and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I only took on about four or five or six Disney movies. I'm planning, again, revisiting some some other Disney movies in uh, CS3. Out of curiosity, were you were you Demolay? No, no, I was not. So you don't have to be. I mean, like, well, obviously, no. I mean, I guess you don't have to be, but I, you, you, I'm just curious. No, no. I've never known anyone that's ever actually in it. No, me neither. I don't know anyone who's in it. You, if you're in Demolay... Um, you can go into the Freemasons, of course, but it's not mandatory. I think Bill Clinton, the yeah. president, was in Demolay, um, but he never became a Freemason. Um, and if you are in Demolay, you cannot hold yourself out as a Freemason, uh, mind you. But um, it, it's a Masonic Boy Scout. It's exactly is exactly what it is. And uh, I'm I'm not in it. I never was in it. I just became a Freemason 20 years ago. But um, Demolay is not a prerequisite to join the Freemasons. I want to thank you for coming on and. Um uh, being here once again, Robert, and uh, tell everybody where they can get the book. Yeah, well, thank you, Adam, for having me on Good Spirit Normal. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was a great show. Uh, I love being here. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to returning. Uh, when my work of fiction is released, we can do something on that and do maybe a catch-all show on like movie symbolism and Freemasonry. If, if, if you like this tonight's podcast and show, by all means, uh, the easiest way to find me and find my books is through my website. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. Uh, my website is just that. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So my website is www.robertwsullivan, uh, the letter I, the letter V, Roman numeral I, Roman numeral V for the fourth, dot com. Uh, from link from there, there are links to buy the books. They're in the ebook form. They're in print form. Uh, they're on all the major online booksellers like Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. You can get the Kindle, the Nook, uh, the EPUB versions. That's all available. My website. You can find out uh, uh, about podcasts and radio and TV shows I'm doing. Uh, links to buy the books. Links to follow me on social media. Uh, more information about me. It's it's a very easy website to navigate. But certainly, plenty of links there to buy the books www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Excellent, Robert. Stay on the line for us, guys, and uh, we'll be back to close out the show. We'll get to paranormal. Almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time.
All right. Uh, I love Robert Sullivan. Yeah, it's some interesting stuff, man. There's like, I should have wrote them down during during the interview. There's so many movies that, that he mentioned on there. There are things I saw previews for back in the day. I was like, oh, that mm-hmm. looks interesting. I should watch that, and I hadn't seen. Um, like a lot of the David Lynch stuff, uh, Black Swan. Like, you know, there's a lot of the movies that, that he brought up throughout, throughout this episode. What's, uh, what would be some of the movie like that, that he talked about that you would be most interested in seeing? Um, at the moment, those, those ones more like deeper into the David Lynch stuff, I guess, uh, black Swan. Cause it looked interesting, but I couldn't tell if it was just kind of like overly pretentious uh-huh. artsy or if it was like actually had some depth to it. Um, no, that's a really good movie. Yeah. I mean, there's a great, you know, I mean, Natalie yeah. Portman and Mila Kunis going at it. It's pretty uh-huh. nice. It's not bad. Yeah, Black Swan ruled. Who's this? Oh, hey, Luke. Oh. Oh, hey. I'm just the guy on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up every now and then. The way, you, the way you said that reminds me of the guy from the room. <laughs> oh, hey, Luke. <laughs> Another movie that comes up all the time that I've never seen. Yeah, I wonder if there's any esoteric uh, uh, significance behind the room. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not do it. I did not hit her. Oh, hi, Mark. Have you seen? Uh, there's a movie coming out about the making of that movie. Yeah, with I, Jay's Franco. I heard about that. <laughs> What in the world? We live in the age where they make movies about the making of bad movies. That seems pretty interesting to me. I would watch it. Well, Have you on- seen The Room? It's been so long, I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> There's really nothing to remember. It's just a series of bad acting. It's bizarre. Oh, I, I must be thinking about an older, different movie. Well, you guys used to talk about this a lot on Leisure Hour. Yeah, like Jeff Je- would bring it up yeah. several times. He thinks it's hilarious. Anyway, everybody's out there never seen The Room. There actually is another movie called The Room that came out not too long ago. That's a completely different movie. But this movie came out like 2004, and it's just this guy. I don't know. It's like he's from Eastern Europe or someplace. I think he's from Poland or something, and he just decided that he wanted to make a movie. And it has this really stilted dialogue. Of course, his accent is really thick. And these, like, unnecessary, like, you know, 10-minute sex scenes that are just ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, like, CGI backdrops. Like, everything CGI. And, like, there's plot points that are completely not followed. Like, at one point, you have the mother of the girl in the movie saying, saying she, says, she says it like this, I just found out I had breast cancer. And it's just it's it's bizarre, oh, man. It's just like bizarro. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> right on. One of the like supposedly one of the worst movies ever made. It remind me about that after the show. I'm gonna go download it. Yeah, you should, man. Well, I, actually, uh, actually, uh, Trace has it. He actually has that movie. He can get you a copy of it. Right. Well, I watched it with him, and it just like, oh man, we were laughing our asses off. But you you could find there's like best of things on YouTube with it and stuff like that. So. Um, I know we gonna we weren't gonna talk about UFOs, but I have to, I have to bring this up. Now it's kind of tangential to UFOs. It's about mummies. Ah, uh. um, we talked a little bit about this, but with Chris Wolford. But there's been like other developments. So apparently, you got this company called Gaia. 
that's out there. Right. And I actually want to talk about another aspect of Gaia with Walter Bosley because he's following some stuff to do with them too, which is something that's completely different on the silly side. Um, apparently, there's this three-fingered mummy that was found in Peru. And like we talked about this where it looks like the mummy has had its hands removed and the three-fingered thing put on it. And it looks like it's covered in plaster. And it, uh, it's and it's just, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is an article from the Atlantic.com. And I thought this was interesting. Um, I'm going to go through this. It's called The Racism Behind Alien Mummy Hoaxes. Pre-Columbian bodies are once again being used as evidence for extraterrestrial life. Pre-Columbian mean from the time before Columbus. Peruvian archaeologists are tired of debunking claims of extraterrestrial influence on human history. In 1968, Swiss author Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods introduced the mainstream to the theory that the Nazca Lines, the massive geoglyphs in southern Peru, whose shapes are fully visible only from the air, were landing strips for quote-unquote ancient astronauts. Archaeologists, <laughs> Luke's rolling his eyes, archaeologists calmly disagree, positing that they were astronomical designs that turned the desert itself into an observatory or counter-constellations ma- matching the dark species, spaces in the Milky Way, or more abstractly, cosmological figures meant to be seen by scholar deities, of which ancient Peru had, Peru had many. 2008's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull put a new spin on this old tale, including for good measure the large-skulled aliens that pepper North American abduction stories. Now, Peruvian scientists are furious at a new and possibly pernicious permutation of the ancient astronaut theory. A web series named Unearthing Nazca purports to depict the investigation of a pre-Columbian and humanoid mummy. Archaeologists who have been denied access to the mummy worry that it is as old as the series creators claim, but that it is actually indigenous and Andean, a real human individual that has been mutilated to look like an alien. They worry that unearthing Nazca is an archaeological snuff film in disguise. The series' success is also of concern since the series launched in June by Gaia.com, a website specializing in conscious media, yoga, and more. The teaser episode of Unearthing Nazca has been viewed 2.35 million times on YouTube alone. It starts with what at first seems to be a typical seated Peruvian mummy, arms wrapped around its knees like a child waiting for its parent. Its head is elongated like those of other pre-Columbian mummies whose societies artificially shape their children's crania to achieve ideals of beauty or represent group belonging. The resemblance ends there. A Hans Zimmer-esque score throbs, and a Russian accident expert in bioelectrography, <laughs> who elsewhere claims to have photographed the human soul escaping the body after death, declares the mummy one of the most important discoveries of the 21st century. The camera orbits the mummy, revealing that it only has, it only has three long fingers on each hand and three long toes on each foot. Its elongated head has no nose, no ears, and large, heavy-lidded eyes, and its skin is an eerie, powdery white. The video's experts stop short of the A-word, letting a series of vest-wearing and white-coat-clad experts claim that X-ray, CT scans of DNA, and carbon-14 tests of the mummy's flesh reveal that the new humanoid or organic creature whom they have dubbed Maria is no fraud. To learn more, viewers were initially encouraged to watch the rest of the investigation behind Gaia's, Gaia's paywall. Oh, well, there you go. 
The English and Spanish language tabloids and YouTube channels that cover the discovery reliably fill in the blanks, guarding journalistic integrity with scare quotes. The alien mummies of Nazca trumpeted the sun in mid-July when the mummy's most prominent promoter, a Mexican ufologist, in quotes, and TV personality named Hami Masson, produced photographic and x-ray proof of at least four additional more reptilian humanoid bodies. Because, of course, what else could they be? Human beings and indigenous ones to boot. In 2015, Mossad tried to promote a photographic slide from the late 1940s that he hinted depicted the corpse of an alien child found in the American Southwest. More skeptical ufologists applied deblurring technology to the Roswell slide. You guys remember that? When it was released and found that a previously undecipherable placard next to the body revealed that it was actually the mummy of a two-year-old Puebloan boy removed from the cliff dwellings of Mesa Verde in 1894. Returned to a National Park Museum in 1938, the boy was repatriated to a local tribe in 2015. Incredibly, Masson then offered $10,000 for information that might permit the Puebloan boy's location and recuperation. The inclusion of pre-Columbian Peruvians in science's supposed cover-up of extraterrestrials echoes the previous collection and study of the indigenous dead. In the 19th century, Anglo-American and European chronologists and scholars who came upon artificially molded skulls and Peruvian tombs hypothesized that they were either the undeformed remnants of a lost and civilized people they named the ancient Peruvians or artificial deformations of later peoples inspired by those ancient Peruvian natural forms. Archaeologists came to realize that deformed Peruvian skulls were bound in shape from infancy when cranial bones weren't yet fused with no, charge, with no change of cranial capacity and judging from the monumental societies their elites achieved without handicapped cognitive ability. But ufology's rise after the quote-unquote Roswell incident of 1947 has resurrected the search for secret ancestors and its less responsible practitioners have re-enlisted ancient Peruvian skulls as evidence of the presence of large-scale gray aliens. They speculate that Peru's greatest pre-Columbian achievements, including Machu Picchu, according to a theory aired on the History Channel program, ancient aliens are literally out of this world, the product of a superior extraterrestrial race or their borrowed technology. So I'm not going to go on and read this whole thing. There's a few more paragraphs on it. But basically um, talking about how there is this idea that, yeah, the, the ancient Peruvians could not have built these things themselves. Uh, therefore it must be aliens that did it because the people that were there were stupid. And, uh, it's kind of like, it's kind of a, a new version of the white, you know, the white man is superior, but just well, I, I've noticed alien. that in a lot of other, like whenever you talk about, you know, uh, pyramid or ancient um, mm-hmm. architecture or anything like that, that's, that's a lot of people's, um, logic as to, you know, their whole belief system in aliens is like, oh, well, you know, these ancient people weren't nearly as smart as us and there's no way they could have done this, which is totally not true because yeah. right. they might not have had the same knowledge base we have. They, they didn't have PlayStations and they didn't have the internet to look stuff up, but they were definitely as intelligent as us. Yeah. And, you know, they, there has been people that have gone on to prove how these things were built and redone it and, you know, built that technology. And, I mean, it's it's not that hard to find if you if you just look for yeah. it, but... It is kind of insulting to the human race in general to assume that we don't have the ingenuity, you know. Right. And especially insulting to the people that are there in that country. Right. Like, for some reason, ancient Peru was alien central back in the day. I mean, come on. Aren't the embossments sticking out of the ground just piles and mounds of rock put together anyway? 
I mean, I, I realize they make a picture from in the air, but like it's just. Oh, like, oh yeah, yeah. You talk about the Nazca lines. Yeah, it's just mounds of rock, right? Um, what they are, yeah, they're they're rocks that are lined up in a in lined into pictures. a line. Yeah, yeah. they're pictures. Um, you know, there's several things that have been said about the Nazca lines. I mean, one of the things was was that the those people actually figured out how to make rudimentary balloons. And they could actually, because, you know, a balloon, right? I mean, it's, you yeah. find some kind of fabric and you know, hot air and it makes it rise. <laughs> so that they could, like, just go up a little, or they could go up to the surrounding cliffside and yeah. they could look down. Right. So, you know, I, just the, the whole, you know, we know the ancient alien stuff is ridiculous anyway. Right. But there's so many other ways that you could explain yeah. this other than, other than ancient aliens. Okay. Ancient Peruvians and hot air balloons, man, right on. <laughs> but but the, but there's another there's another uh, aspect to this though, is that there could be a real like criminal case could be made against the people Gaia that's promoting this and Jaime Masson that's promoting this desecration of a grave, desecration of a grave, desecration of a corpse. And the Peruvian authorities are getting more and more angry about this every day. Like, it's getting more to the point where they're just like, they're ready to say, hey, you need to let us come in and look at this and find out what it is. Okay. And Gaia has made some other responses, like they've taken some of the stuff off their paywall. Like, they were, they were charging for, uh, so you could watch. Dude, they put the first episode online and then... You know, right. you paid two ninety nine to watch their, you know, the other episodes of them. These supposed quote unquote doctors looking, these experts looking at this alien body, and then Masan came out and said, "Oh, well, there's five more of them, supposedly." And then there's a whole other aspect with Gaia, with this Corey Good guy who claims to be a Martian super soldier. But I want to save that for next week with Walt. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Next week with Walter Bosley, okay, because he's looked a lot into that. So, the, so Gaia is involved with that too. Um, so there seems to be a lot of just weird, weirdness and stupidity that is centered around this Gaia company. Like they're really trying to cash in on this whole thing. So, um, I just wanted to bring that up because I did a roundtable episode. It, I don't know if it's going to be posted by the time this comes out, but I did a roundtable episode with uh, Soraya and Red Pill Junkie, another guy named Ren Collier, who we'll have on the show soon. Um, and we were talking about this and bringing up how the Peruvian authorities are pretty pissed off. And uh, Ren brought up that in 2014, Greenpeace actually went out there and desecrated the Nazca lines. Like they wrote some kind of thing on the Nazca lines, like they're they're uh, to bring conscious awareness for environmentalism, and the Peruvians were like, uh, "No, destroy them! <laughs> you you've destroyed a UNESCO World Heritage site." So let's get the you know the per, per, Peruvian government and the UN mad at you, right? I mean, ridiculous. So don't go destroying World Heritage sites because you think that they're they're aliens. And we watched the little thing about this, uh, that little six-minute video that Gaia put out about it. And they said, well, these, there's pottery all over the ground. And you can look around and you can, you can pick up these pieces of pottery. And they have these little figures with, little three, with three fingers on them. So, hmm, interesting. That must be a connection. And 
so uh, here's the probably the connection to that. Maybe there is actually really th- those stylistically three fingered pottery on the ground where they've probably have mutilated this mummy t- and put the three fingers on it to match the pottery that's on the ground. <clears throat> Uh, sounds like to me, since they had to use such finite detail in painting the pottery, that it would be easier to paint three fingers, you know, rather than all mm-hmm. five and try to get the anatomy of the hand right. Well, like I said, it's probably stylistic. Yeah. Probably yeah. it's artistic. It's art expression. Right, right. I mean, honestly, like, you know, are people, are, are people in a thousand years going to look at a Picasso and kind of like this, these kind of deformed figures that he made, the stylistic figures that Picasso made and said, hey, those people must have existed. They must have been creatures that looked just like what this what this guy painted. <laughs> we were, or, we're all blockheads. You know, that, well, <laughs> the other side of that is the pottery they found probably wasn't from their, their greatest artist of the time. You know, they found the equivalent of my handwriting too. on a piece of pottery. Of course, it's going to have three fingers. And I mean, there's also a thing about pottery and you guys can attest to this. Um, not going to say where we were, but we were at a place and there was somebody selling these rocks that someone bought from this person. Luke will tell him, you went over, you looked at the people, what they were selling. These people said they were from Mexico and they saying these were all found in the ground all these kind of like alien figures. Yeah. So you went over to the table. Scam. <laughs> you went, but you saw something that looked like a meme that you saw on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I called him out on it. Well, I, I was trying to try trying to be as subtle as po- and, and polite still. You know what I'm mm-hmm, saying? Mm-hmm. But I did say I was like, so did you carve these or you know did you actually find them? And he's just like was short, you know, interrupted me. He's like, I found him. He's like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. You think, you know, you think I'm here to trick you, get a little defensive and stuff. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa man. You know, this is, this guy had unlikely. like, this guy had like his 16 or 17 year old son. So like our theory was, was like with him. So our theory was like, like the kid carved that probably because he was, he knew about that particular meme. Do you remember yeah. what the meme was? That Ah, uh, no. No, I don't. It was just some kind of weird little, like, maybe Japanese logo or something like that from okay. the anime kids. I don't know. But something you knew, something you recognized. Yeah. I think I think it was from something from Naruto. <laughs> right. So the, the ancient aliens must have been into that back in the day. <laughs> I mean, they uh, artistically, they were awesome. Like, I, sure. They were cheaper. I would have bought some. But they were saying that this was found in the ground in this right. place in Mexico. Again, not saying where we were. You guys really want to investigate that? You, you know, you can find out. You can talk to me offline, but I'm not going to say where they were. But that's the kind of stuff that's out there. Okay, there's people making money off this stuff, and if Gaia or whoever it is, Jaime Masson, get picked up a body. And desecrated it, that's a crime. So somebody could go to jail for this. The I like to is, say the thing is, if they genuinely found an alien body, how how long ago did this come out? Like six months now? It's been a few months, yeah. It doesn't take that long to 
like definitively say, okay, this is not human. And then you go public with it and make millions and millions of dollars, way more money than they're making now by hiding behind right. this little paywall curtain on their web channel. Right. Give it to the world. Yeah. Instead of, instead of, um, or sell, even it. sell it to the world. I don't care if you're making money off of it, yeah. but I mean, there's no way they would just be sitting in a closed room with this thing still for that long. Exactly. Exactly. Only letting the people that they select look at it and no outside parties and definitely not the Peruvian government. Something's up. I call shenanigans. All right, guys. Um, that's the end of this show. But we are recording another show tonight because we're dedicated to bringing you the best quality on your favorite podcast. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. So, Rob, please uh, tell everybody to, you know, we're, we're pushing Patreon. We're going to have a Patreon, Patreon episode up. Short one with uh, Robert Sullivan talking about Manly P. Hall and some more uh, esoteric Freemasonry things. So right, tell we got a lot of where they can find that. Yeah, we got a lot of other shows in there as well. Uh, go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And there's different pay tiers. You know, you get the bonus episodes, the wallpapers. We got t-shirts. Uh, and just join in on the community there. Absolutely, guys. And thank you so much. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, man. <laughs> it's the <laughs> least I could do, buddy. Luke, take us out. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> why do you do that? You gotta give me a warning. Just, just cut. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. We'll be see you next time on Conspiranormal. Get your soul. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.